Welcome home for the holodunce, everyone. This is Tales from the Rec Room, where constantly talking isn't necessarily communicating. I'm your host, Bree Rody, baby boy. And who is with me on the line today? I'm Rachel Kellogg, just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. And welcome home for the holodance to Rachel. Thank you so much for being with us on this final episode in this week of Holiday Fun, in which we pay tribute to the child who was born unto us, Kirsten Dunst. Uh, this week, uh, actually, I will say, we we didn't intend this, but we've had a husband and wife uh, theme on uh, on Home for the Holodunce because this was bookended with you and your wonderful husband, Mike Stevens. Um, so we have covered five different Kirsten Dunst movie vehicles every day this week. I'm finally done, so I'm really happy. <laughs> now the fun part comes is editing them all. But today we're doing my favorite movie of all time, uh, still falling within the confines of Tales from, Tales from the Rec Room, in which we have to have first watched this via traditional or physical media. And today we're back in the 2000s with Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Now, Rachel, you were last with us to discuss Center Stage as one of our resident dance experts. And you're joining us admittedly as a, as a ringer today. So I thank you for that. Coincidentally, uh, this movie, which is about love and relationships, we are recording it on your anniversary with best friend of the show, Mike Stevens. Um, but can you tell me a little bit about why you agreed to help us out here with Eternal Sunshine? Yes, absolutely. And I'm I'm delighted to be here again anyway, so <laughs> I'm glad it all worked out. Yay! Um, I saw this movie in theaters. I know we're going to get to that, but I, I saw it when I was at the impressionable age of 16. Um, I remember the trailer really vividly. I rewatched the movie, of course, ahead of the recording of this and immediately had to go and watch the trailer again because it was just still in my mind almost 20 years later. Mm -hmm. um, I remember the Tom Wilkinson sales pitch for Lacuna. I remember the lacunainc.com URL at the end. Extremely mm -hmm. innovative marketing in 2004. Well done. Um, mm -hmm. Lacunainc.com, I checked. It does not exist anymore. So somebody buy that and do something Ooh. cool with that domain. <laughs> Some super fan mm -hmm. Brie, maybe. Brie, you need <laughs> another side project to bring back Lacuna Inc. I need one more. I need one more. <laughs> and I remember thinking... It's Jim Carrey doing a serious role again after The Truman Show. And I, The Truman Show is still a, a favorite movie of mine. I love that movie. Kate Winslet is doing Show. an American accent again, probably for the first time since Titanic or the first time that I noticed <laughs> since Titanic. And I have to admit, uh, there's always a Lord of the Rings tie on, tie on, tie mm -hmm. in when I'm on the show. And that is, this was Elijah Wood's first role since Return of the King. So Lord of the Rings was done. I had seen Return of the King in theater four times um actually in 2004 I think I hadn't seen it yet I have to I have to get the years straight but um you know we were we were curious about what all these actors were going to do after this this epic journey they'd been on with, with Lord of the Rings and especially Elijah Wood and Elijah Wood has a role in uh in Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind so I'm sure that my friends and I in part saw it because we were curious about how he was going to be in this movie I think um, Lord of the Rings was Elijah Wood's gateway into his weird little guy era because he really like he was cons I feel like Hollywood tried to market him as a hot heartthrob prior to Lord of the Rings. And he really isn't like he's a handsome enough guy, but he's just got kind of a strange little face because like he's a weird little creep in this movie. And then he goes on to do Sin City in which he is the ultimate weird little creep. <laughs> The thing that we didn't know when we saw this movie was that this was the beginning of not only Elijah Wood exclusively, I think, taking indie roles for the remainder of his career up until now. Mm -hmm. It was the beginning of him playing weird little creeps or weird little guys forever. And mm -hmm. I don't know how much of that part. Part of that is he knows he can be cast in those roles. 
But I think he's also been vocal about being picky. Um, mm-hmm. After doing Lord of the Rings, he wasn't really interested in trying to do traditional movie stardom. He just wanted to make cool art. Um, and he's he's a totally like cerebral guy in real life. Like if you listen to an interview with him, he's, he's kind of a fascinating person. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think I think what we didn't know at the time, this this is his first movie after, you know, exploding into stardom with, with Lord of the Rings. And he's kind of just done movies and roles like this since for the last 20 years. It's really fascinating. Love that for him. Um, but then, of course, this is very much a movie about... It's it's not a movie about relationships. It is a ponderance on relationships. It is a ponderance on love and heartbreak. Um, and uh, so unlike you, I didn't see this in theater. I, I saw it maybe two years after it first came out. Um, I was in my first relationship at the time with a friend of the show, Luke, um, and we watched it um, on his very small TV set in his like basement bedroom. And I remember finding the movie um, like just just kind of liking it at the time, just kind of liking it. It wasn't until I watched it again a few years later when, you know, I'd moved on from my first relationship and was in, I would think I was about 20, 21, and I was in a relationship with someone that, like, I was starting to realize, like, oh, this is this probably isn't going to work. I'm not so sure about this. Do not watch this movie when you are unsure about, like, a relationship because it will... Fast forward a couple years when I'd when I'd just been in love with this movie, and I actually had to watch this movie to psych myself up to break up with a guy. Oh, I love art like that that you just did <laughs> to get to, to get ready to do the thing you know you need to do. Um, yeah, yeah. This, this movie it, it was a bit of a sleeper for me too. I saw it in theaters, loved it. I remember my my me and my friends loving it. We were already uh, Michelle Gondry fans. We were fans mm-hmm. of some of his music videos, and we we were specifically excited for Michelle Gondry as well. Um, and then it kind of came back into my life when I was deep in the Toronto hipster world of the early 2000s. So Mm -hmm. two to three years later when people, I would just, you know, go hang out at people's houses after class or after work or whatever. I went to U of T, so I was, you know, a student in the city and I worked at Starbucks in the city. And Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind was just always there and it seemed to always be on. And in preparation for this podcast, Brie, I actually tore through my DVD, mine and Mike's DVD collection, um, mm-hmm. because I could have sworn I had a copy of it. And I didn't look extremely hard, but it, it's a very distinct cover. And I don't think I actually own this. I can see the DVD color cover in my mind's eye so clearly with them on the ice that's cracking. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I just think this was this was something that was at everybody else, else's house. And I distinctly remember um, everyone kind of having their own interpretation of it. When I saw Mm -hmm. this when I was 16, this is what's fascinating. I saw this when I was 16 and I was like, they end up together at the end. Yay. They were meant (laughs) to be. Yeah. And then I watched it again at maybe 20 when I'd had a little bit more experience. Mm -hmm. And I started talking to people about it in my early 20s. And I I remember really vividly a conversation with a woman I worked with at Starbucks, whose name I don't even remember, who explained, who described, she was a little bit older than me. She was maybe 23, 24. So three or four years older than me. And she explained watching this movie with her girlfriends and all of them just sobbing at the end Mm. uh, from, I I think, a similar situation to you of like, do not watch this movie when you're in a relationship that is, you know, that that maybe needs to end or maybe isn't going in the direction you expected. Mm -hmm. But the way this woman interpreted, interpreted it just stuck with me because 
the way she saw it was like they're meant to be together even though they keep hurting each other so mm-hmm. it's worth it even though it's toxic so i think she and it sounds like some of her friends saw this as <laughs> our boyfriends are shitty to us but it's meant to be anyway and who knows what happened with any of that but <laughs> it's been so interesting to just see my own interpretation of it change hear other people's interpretations of it um so so yeah so this this was a movie that uh you know kind of i i saw i certainly saw it in theaters in high school and then it definitely came back into my life in university in the, in the dvd format and in the dvd format of uh seeing it at other people's houses mm-hmm. all right now before we go any further because no one ever listens to the end of the episode tell us right now where we can find you follow you and uh argue with you online or agree with you <laughs> You can um, argue with me in good faith at uh, at Rachel GBK. I'm mostly on Instagram. You can find me on Blue Sky. I'm there a little bit more now. And I'm a little bit on TikTok. But uh, you're going to get the fastest reply on uh, at Rachel GBK. And if you argue with me in bad faith, I'll block you. Um, I have a newsletter. It's been a bit... It's been a bit slow to get going um, with uh, uh, when I was last year, I, my baby was seven weeks old and now he's almost eight months old. So I'm in a very different life <laughs> phase, actually. Um, but I have a newsletter that I want to keep going with. It's rachelgbk.substack.com. Um, the next thing I want to write about is actually just the kind of embracing the chaos of the holiday season uh, and enjoying it um, and having a, a new, finding a new joy for it um, coming out of the, the pandemic and everything. And just kind of embracing mm-hmm. how busy how busy this time of year is. So I'm excited to, to keep going with it. You can keep up with me there. Yeah, I, I feel like um, you've been posting so much on your on your Instagram of just like holiday content and stuff. I feel like last year, as as a multi faith household, you guys kind of lucked out last year because Hanukkah and Christmas overlapped last year, and this year they do not. And so I'm just like, oh, there's so many gatherings and so many dinners that Mike and Rachel are doing right now, and I'm just like, it's- bravo to you, man. It's been wild. We act, I actually tend to prefer it when Hanukkah is at the beginning of the month like it was this year. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Because you can just kind of get it over with and then move on. But uh, yeah, we, we've just embraced like in December, regardless of when Hanukkah is, we have like a minimum of five family things just throughout mm-hmm. the month. A minimum, maybe six, maybe even seven. The other thing is, is that we, um, as you know, we really like to see our friends and we like to see our yes. friends do festive yeah. stuff. So we're doing both because we have to do the family things and we're not going to not do the friend things. So mm-hmm. the last, I think, three weekends have just been nonstop, you know, event in the morning, event in the afternoon, whatever else. Yesterday we were at a lunch followed by an afternoon gathering, um, and which was great. It was like a family lunch in the, in the morning. And then we went to the friend thing because we're like, damn it, we're going to the friend thing. And it was so worth it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're all totally exhausted. The house is just exploding with presents from, from Hanukkah and holiday gatherings and everything. But we're just kind of embracing it and going with it. And uh, there will be time to rest later. <laughs> Beauty. Now we've talked about theaters versus home viewing. Um, We've talked about how our friends related to it. But most importantly, when you first saw Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind in 2004, what was your favorite go-to movie snack? It was popcorn, and it still is. And I said that last time. But because I saw this one in theaters, I have a memory of uh, popcorn with extra butter. And I can't remember if you could ask for layered butter yet or if I knew that, but I just like the, the, the buttery mm-hmm. popcorn. And since um, having my my oldest son, Gabe, who's now four, I've been to the movie theater 
a handful of times, maybe four. Mm -hmm. So I haven't had a lot of movie popcorn. Um, so I could definitely like like smell and taste it when I think about uh, this movie saw theaters. Mm -hmm. Now, if I'm actually thinking of my first viewing of this, if I saw that this movie at uh, Luke's house, I will say we never had snacks at his place. Oh, no. um, it was not a it was not a perpetually like a stacked snack pantry kind of home, um, but. Uh, when I think about when I, when this movie truly started to become like a big part of me, uh, which was university, you could often find me snacking on a lot of like name brand Tostito or no name brand Tostito knockoffs um, with salsa uh, pretzels. Um, and to be honest, also, if since I got really into this movie when I was in university, I was probably high as balls watching this movie so i would uh my i guess you could say my go-to movie snacks were everything i forgot to mention that too when going to people's houses in the 20s okay it's the 20s now in my 20s which was not this <laughs> yes. decade in my 20s um in the in the kind of early aughts uh to 2010s era era um we would definitely get high and watch eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and snack on everything that was that mm -hmm. was definitely just something i did at like four or five different people's houses who I met either in university or working at Starbucks. Like it was just kind of, it was just kind of part of the mm -hmm. moment. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because you talked about being fans of uh, you guys all being fans of Michelle Gondry. I, I would say that for me and like my friends, this was something that I had to be introduced to and I wasn't yet familiar with, uh, with Michelle Gondry. Um, I was, I was familiar with Charlie Coffin because I'd seen being John Malkovich. However, I didn't really get it because I was a little bit too young. Um, this was in the era though, when I was starting to get into, I'll say snootier movies. Um, I think cause at some point I am just going to have to do a full episode on the summer of 2004 for me and how that just like changed everything with the movies I watched and stuff. But, um, yeah, I I do think this is Kaufman's most like accessible film and so but it still would be a pretty stressful watch um when high um cuz like I'm a big fan of I'm thinking of ending things. I would never recommend that anyone watch that in any mind altered state at all. It's it's an, an incredibly upsetting movie. Like um the last time I mean I don't drink anymore but I remember like it doesn't take much to freak me out from TVs and movies, uh, TV and movies, which is not to say I'm easily scared, but like, I remember one time, coincidentally, actually in the town I live in now, but being about 20 years old and being really, really like too drunk and watching the cartoon Super Jail. I'm not sure how many people are all that familiar with Super Jail. And the imagery was actually making me like back up in my chair. Oh, wow. Um, so this is not quite a back up in your chair movie, but this is a... I feel really upset kind of movie totally. for me. <laughs> you could definitely put yourself in a bad situation if you're not careful. Cause I think what we would do is hang out, get high, have a few drinks, throw this on, talk over it and enjoy the visuals. Right. I think that was mm -hmm. my experience a lot yeah. with this movie after initially seeing mm -hmm. it and you enjoy the video visuals of the house crumbling or, you know, people's faces looking weird and all the, all the brilliant things mm -hmm. that uh, take place in the film. To tell Elijah me. Wood's weird upside down Obsessed eyes in the one scene. Like so weird. <laughs> um, and you just kind of enjoy that. But if you pay too close attention and depending on what's going on in your life and you're super baked, like you might, uh, you might go down a mind rabbit hole you maybe don't want to be in. 
No, and that's the thing is Eternal Sunshine is for trusted watching with your friends. Um, it's it's also I should I should say I meant to put this in the intro. This is the first curse and dense movie which uh, we're doing, and I guess the only one of this week that is not a kind of capital K curse and dense movie. She is supporting cast. Um, I would argue that she is one of the most. She is the most su- important supporting cast member. Um, She's just not above the marquee. But um, I do think since we're talking about stars, it's important to discuss where Jim Carrey was not only his career, but also in his personal image at the time. Because like it, this was a few years post Truman Show. So people knew he could do drama. Um, but I think it was also now I'm having a hard time finding the context of it. But when Jim Carrey started talking more openly about the fact that like shocker, he's not a fucking clown in real life, that he dealt with depression, I think it was pretty open around this time um i think fortunately this is also uh before he started opening his mouth about vaccines um and like has he i feel like he stopped saying things about vaccines i hope because i really would like to him to get back to being like beloved jim carrey i think so i think he and jenny mccartney are long long history like ancient Mm -hmm. history like i think they they've been split up for years she was mm-hmm. the big anti-vax person. I vividly remember watching her on Oprah talk about it and feeling my blood boil as a teenager. But that's a separate episode. Um, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, but I think they split while Jenny McCartney was continuing to do her horrible, uh, irresponsible drumbeat of um, of anti-vax stuff. And I haven't really... We haven't really seen or heard from Jim Carrey in a while, I feel like, which is hopefully... Well, he was Robotnik in the Sonic movies, and he, like, what I will say is there was an era, um, and it was around, like, kind of 2004-ish, where being anti-vaccine was, like, a weird little niche, but no one, I don't think people understood at the time how dangerous it was. And so I was like, oh, that person doesn't vaccinate their kids. Oh, that's weird. Like now we understand that it's like, it's like a white supremacy pipeline thing. And Jim Carrey has been shown to be generally more on the left in his politics. So I would hope that he's kind of back in with like science is good but yeah like he's kind of had this nice little like what i would call a quiet renaissance with his um being dr robotnik in the sonic movies and it's like i you know what jim carrey i hope you're living a life that makes you happy um he's also i think kept a low profile since the wrongful death lawsuits of his ex-girlfriend and that's one of those things where i'm just like i don't want to think about that you know and like look it's it's kind of like Heath Ledger and Mary Kate Olsen. I don't know shit about it. I'm not going to pretend to know shit about it. It's a very sad same. thing and Hard people in Hollywood same. are weird. Um but yeah. Yeah. Um so much Heath Ledger talk on this podcast. Um but uh yeah, like Jim Carrey I think was starting to like I I don't think his casting in this was seen as controversial or anything because he had this developing image as a very complicated man, a very withdrawn man. Um, Apparently he was quite difficult to work with on this because he is so big and animated all the time. Um, But I, I really like... I feel like that's a good thing because I feel like you see this tension in his performance. Like one of the things I love about Joel as a character is that he is so terminally uncomfortable all the time. And I think if I recall reading, there was um, 
there was tension between Carrie and and Gondry, but I think in a way that really oh, yes. works and creates a Joel great character. Normal. Something I have um, that I was I was going to say later in the episode is actually one of my favorite things about this movie is Jim Carrey's use of slapstick to not but not for laughs. The first shot of him kicking all the covers off of his mm-hmm. bed is so quintessentially Carrie, and he. I feel like he must not have been directed to do that. He was directed to get out of bed. And that's how Jim Carrey gets out of bed because he's made of rubber. Catching the train to Montauk, barely getting through the doors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> only Jim Carrey can pull that off. There are so many moments yep. of just this jumpy, twittery, uh, tw- or twitchy, twitchy, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, uh, to your point, tense character. And also just mm-hmm. these moments of wild slapstick that is quintessentially Carrey but absolutely works and good for the filmmakers to not try to play that for laughs. laughs. It's played straight. This is just who Joel is. He just moves his mm-hmm. body this way sometimes and it adds to the character. It doesn't take away. Mm-hmm. Um, now let's talk about two tropes because this movie was really head- ahead of its time. Um, number one being the man of pixie dream girl. Um, I think people forget that Nathan Raven was inspired to write uh, about the trope. First, uh, first term use in 2007. But by none other than Kiki Dunst herself, um, because he was writing about Elizabethtown and her character in Elizabethtown. Um, The term um, began to be applied to other movies about a year later. And I do believe some some have mistakenly called Clementine a manic pixie dream girl. But I think for the most part, people do know that she is a deconstruction of it. But um, Manic Pixie Dream Girl kind of reminds me of the Bechdel test, which we discussed in yesterday's episode. Um, It was coined as a sort of clever joke and this writerly tool, and it had a lot of merit. But it began being implied, like being applied almost uncritically. Like people say, like, and and I don't have any hate toward Nathan Rabin for this, because I think Rabin himself never intended Manic Pixie Dream Girl to spread in such a way. But um, like... People started using it to refer to, like, any girl with blue hair or whatever. Like, oh, Ramona is a manic pixie dream girl in Scott Pilgrim. No, Ramona is a fully fleshed out character and Scott Pilgrim is a shallow asshole. Um, But I I think it's, I just also think it's silly to act like Raven is the first to criticize it as well, because this movie is a criticism of that trope. It just didn't have a name yet. This movie decimates that trope. Exactly. It was really interesting to watch this movie again for this podcast because I don't know if I'd watched it since I knew the phrase Manic Pixie Dream Girl. And the first shot I saw of Clementine on the on the train, I was like, oh, how did teenage me not know that she was a Manic Pixie Dream Girl? <laughs> and then as I watched the film further and remembered more of it and remembered more of this discourse, um, my brain slightly unborked itself so that I could actually just watch the movie. <laughs> Um, but it had me thinking of other films around that era. Um, Lost in Translation came out the year before, I believe. Uh, pink hair, you know, the pink wig on Scar on ScarJo. Mm-hmm. Um, it had me thinking, of course, of Garden State, which I regret to inform you was one of my very favorite movies in high school. Uh, it was a yeah, lot of our was, favorite yeah. movies. I was, I was a hipster; couldn't help it. <laughs> Say la vie. And mm-hmm. it even had me thinking of once the the movie with Glenn Hansard and Marquetta or Glova, um, because once is very much about and I think what all these and I was reflecting on I was like, what do all these movies have in common, including Eternal Sunshine? And they're all movies about uh the journey of the man and his journey, mm-hmm. his sort of whatever hero's journey, beginning, middle, and end, and a woman coming into his life and 
changing the course of his life in some way. Um, Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind is, you know, that's an oversimplification. Clementine is a fully fleshed out character. Um, I believe Winslet was recognized as a, uh, a, a an actor, not a supporting actor. Thank goodness. But this movie mm-hmm. begins with Joel. This is about Joel. And then Joel and then Clementine comes into the story. Um, so it really had me reflecting mm. on the kind of 2000s and what we call or don't call the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. And it, it's a way in, in so many ways, it's a way of describing um, maybe female characters that weren't developed enough. Uh, maybe female characters who are used only to advance the plot of the man, um, the the male character. But to your point here, Clementine is, we're told extremely early on that Clementine is a subversion of whatever that trope is, which as a 16 year old, I think I found very, very refreshing. Mm-hmm. And and like what I like about this movie is, and I, I, I'm just going to continue to discuss it as though Manic Pixie Dream Girl was in the lexicon at the time, even though it wasn't. Um, but not only does this movie say like the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is bullshit, like men do this to women all the time, but it also says, hey, that woman that you've projected your own shit onto, um, she's that way because she's mentally ill. And you're going to have to do that, deal with that shit when you're in an intimate relationship. Like whether or not Kaufman intended to write it this way, and, and I really do think Odds are he wrote it from having experience with someone who is like this and maybe just wasn't aware of this. Clementine exhibits so much BPD, uh, so much of borderline personality disorder. And um, I know people who have BPD. Um, there is a young person in my life who is dealing with that. And um, it's it's at a point where I've, I've actually had to distance myself from that person for a while um, until they figure their shit out. But like her overreactions to things, her instant attachment to Joel, like the fact... And, you know, just as Joel projects a lot onto Clementine, Clementine looks at Joel and is kind of like, you are going to fill the emptiness in my life. You know, um, I, I love that. Um, like, yeah, it's um, th- there's another thing that I was watching and this is just like my rewatch today. It might just be my interpretation, but I sometimes think the reason men like Joel project all the Manny Pixie Dream Girl uh, shit onto the Clementines of the world is because they're not used to thinking of women as fully realized personalities themselves. Like they're not you they're not people who think women are capable of being interesting or funny. So the second they meet a woman who has a sense of humor or likes music, they're like, oh my God, this woman is so quirky. Like she's gonna change my fucking life. Like, no, she's just the first woman whose opinion it is you decided to listen to. Like that's why I get manic pixie dream girl, because they're like, guys are will be like, oh, you like music? It's like, yes, everyone likes music. That's exactly right. Uh, <laughs> so know? many, I mean all women who date uh, cis men have experienced dating a cis man who just does not f- see them as a fully realized person. Um, you know, I, that is, uh, let me be very clear. That is not my experience in my 14 years today relationship. Uh, Mike made it very early, <laughs> very clear early in our relationship that he respects uh, every, every side of my personality and does see women as, as fully realized people. But certainly you know in my dating life before then like it it would become obvious so quickly that it's like oh you you just you just think that you're better than all women by virtue of having a penis cool i'm not going to get any closer to you then right um and Mm -hmm. you're you're absolutely right that the manic pixie dream girl is is just another version of that the same way uh you know 
men categorizing women in every in any way, whether it's a blonde bimbo, whether it's, you know, a nerd, it's just another way of categorizing a woman to project themselves onto and to hopefully see this woman complete them in some way that is uh, setting the whole thing up for failure. Mm-hmm. One thing that is really not touched on um, in the text at all, but I really love through the set dressing is you can see that um, Clementine and Joel as well seem to be pretty poor. And um, Clementine works at a bookstore. We don't really know what Joel does, but he lives in like a bachelor apartment and sleeps on a pullout couch, which Joel, Joel, you're back. Like, um, but uh, like the whole, the idea of like this romanticized life of like, oh yeah, I'm dating this girl. She works at a bookstore and she's got all this crazy crap on her walls. Yeah. And it's also really difficult, like barely holding your shit together and stuff. Like, you know, she, I, I kind of love just those little touches of like, they're going to see her grandma and they're taking the train because like only Joel has a car and it's a piece of shit. Um, you know, stuff like that. I, I really love it. But I, I also want to talk about nice guy tropes because I think Joel is an absolute nice guy and not even in this super toxic, manipulative, nice guy way, but like, there's a deconstruction there because Joel knows he's this way. Like at the beginning, he says, why do I fall in love with every woman who is nice to me? And Or like when he's at David Cross's house and he's whining, like I'm the nicest guy she's ever gone out with. Like, um, but he's, he's also really self-hating. I will say that at the time, I feel like there weren't a lot of challenges of traditional masculinity um, in mainstream uh mainstream movies and even in indie dramas and stuff. Like it's very, it was a, very much a Chad era kind of thing. And I think seeing a guy like Jim Carrey, who like, he's not known for being like jacked or super mask or anything, but he's very conventionally good looking and quite masculine. And the way they kind of like dress him down and make him into a nice guy, but it's very obvious, like we're not always supposed to sympathize with Joel. Joel is very self-loathing. Joel is very pretentious. Joel thinks he's better than Clementine. Like Joel's nice, but he says some really awful things to Clementine. She says awful things to him too. They're mm-hmm. toxic. Let's make that clear. Oh yeah. Um, but he's he's very judgmental of her. You know, maybe it's not fair mm-hmm. for her to throw in his face while not throw in his face, but just announce while they're walking through Uh, the market or whatever, I want to have a baby and him kind of scoffing at it and her reacting the way that, that she does. But I think what that scene shows us is that he scoffs at her all the time. And by the time they're, I think, you know, probably Mm -hmm. two years into their relationship at that point, um, when things really start to to unravel before she walks out on him. um, It's not that he scoffed or laughed at the specific notion of, I want to have a baby of her saying, I want to have a baby. It's, it's that's, that's the 10th time, time. Or that's the 100th yeah. time or that's the 10th time that week. Right. And so, yeah, he's mm-hmm. nice, but he's very judgmental of Clementine. You know, he he assumes that she's out fucking guys if she's coming home at 3 a.m. He can't imagine her doing anything else at night when she's out, you know, presumably mm-hmm. with with friends or whatever else. Um, so I find that so interesting that we, we talk, you know, this movie talks so much about the word nice. Um <laughs> It, it it makes me think of you know so much critique that I've heard of the word nice, which which is fascinating. You know, you see you see things of like I'm I'm kind, I'm not necessarily nice, which I'm like I don't even know what that means. If someone says that to me, um, and maybe this is why. Maybe it's like someone could be nice to your face and they can seem nice, but they can actually do things that really really hurt you um, quite easily. Well, it kind of makes me think of uh, back in the peak show days, our discussion of Walter White and how like 
realizing that even if you look back at kind of pre-Heisenberg and early Walter, Walter White is not actually that nice of a man in terms of like, he's not a pleasant man. He just agrees with everyone. Like he is not charming. He's not sweet. He doesn't smile at people. Um, Like Joel is quote unquote nice because he leaves people alone and he like kind of minds his business and doesn't rock the boat very aggressively. And so he can kind of get away with that. But then, you know, he can have these kind of passive aggressive um little jabs so um i i really like how equally flawed they both are and even at the end when they're listening to their tapes and it's like i would never say that well i would never do that because they both think of themselves as very different than they are which really goes to show like kind of once your walls break down in a relationship and it's like this is this is who i actually am by the way and you know that's why i always think like there's a reason you know you and I are both happily married and it's because we're with people who stayed with us after the walls broke down it's like oh by the way this is who we actually are you know and and they're like okay cool this movie has me reflect a lot on well watching this again I hadn't watched it in a few years and watching it again as a 35 year old who's married with two kids and has you know some adult life to look back on now um I think about you know I think about the beginning of mine and Mike's relationship 14 years ago today. Um, And we made a very quick decision to be in a relationship and be in a serious relationship. Uh, There were a few factors. He had to finish up his degree in Windsor. So there was going to be four months of long distance. And so the conversation had to happen of like, is it going to be four months of long distance or is it going to be indefinite long distance? Because neither of us was willing to do indefinite long distance. We could do finite long distance. Right. Um, And we agreed Mm -hmm. to see each other every three weeks. And, um, and we, you know, we, we prioritize talking on the phone and we just we just took the relationship seriously as relationships are meant to. That doesn't mean we don't have fun. Anyone who's met Mike knows that he's like hilarious and definitely makes me laugh every day. But we just, you know, we had to get some sort of some ground rules in place right at the start, um, which to both of us was completely normal. We were just like, well, if I'm going to be in a relationship and I and I really into you and I want to be with you, this is how it's going to go. And we were completely on the same page about it and then as our relationship went on it's like well where are we going to live we both want to live in toronto like what if our careers take us elsewhere etc etc um there's obviously like a lot of privilege there as well with the privilege of choosing but um Mm -hmm. you know just as as the years went by like we just you you come to these moments of just like uh we're going to the next phase of life now and and Mike and I are always just like yes we're going to go through that together so how is that going to work and it, it's it's largely you know we're largely on the same page about a lot of things because we have a lot of shared values and that was established like so 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 early on and the fascinating thing about this movie and and the end of it especially is like I look at it now and I'm like Clem and Joel if you really want to you can make this work <laughs> Like, if you really want to, um, you know, we'll, we'll get into mm-hmm. if they're in an infinite loop or whatever else. But like, again, I think back to that conversation with the coworker at Starbucks when I was 20 and her and her seeing them as sort of being doomed, but meant to be together. That was her interpretation. Other people see them as doomed to fail no mm-hmm. matter what. They sort it's sort of implied at the end of the movie that maybe they're doomed to fail no matter what. But if but, she, you know, she says to him, he, he she says, you're going to see things you don't like about me and I'm going to feel trapped. And okay, yeah, that's going to happen. How are you going to navigate those things? So it's going to be forever. Mm-hmm. It's going to go down in flames. You know, what the movie shows us is no matter what, you have to go, you have to go through it. 
I think like, yeah, and like we might as well talk about this now because we've all, I, I think anyone who likes this movie has kind of read the little piece of trivia about how the ending, um, and, and I can imagine this probably would have just been a little kind of bookend scene, um, but you kind of find out that they have erased each other over and over and over. And that, when I learned that, like, and that was kind of, you know, when I watched the movie for the second time when I was about 20, that was what sent me into a fucking tailspin. Um, that was like, cause I was like, oh my God, like they, you know, cause when you know that you can't, first of all, you can't project a like, oh my God, maybe these crazy kids are going to make it work. Um, that said, I, I do like that they leave that out because A, you know, you can naively do maybe these crazy kids can make it work. But also, I think the important factor is now they know that they have tried to erase each other. And I think the movie's thesis, there are a lot of theses in this movie, um, but one of it is basically just that this is not how things are meant to be. You know, relationships and, and memories and stuff weren't meant to be like this. We were meant to experience heartbreak and learn from our heartbreak. And so it's like if they can get through this once and they know what their heartbreak was like, maybe they can learn. But like the idea is this option is not going to be there for them again. They like I think it's kind of implied that Mary's going to burn Lacuna to the ground in oh, some yeah. ways. Oh, yeah. Mary is a hero. She is so amazing. Um, I... I, I saw a tweet probably a decade ago now about them erasing each other over and over again. And I just kind of like, it, it, it didn't, it didn't grab me the way that it grabbed you. I was kind of like, huh, maybe. And then I watched it again last <laughs> night and, or two nights ago. And I felt kind of the same thing. I was kind of like, huh, maybe. But to your point, regardless yeah. of whether or not they've done that, they're not going to again now. Right. Like lacuna, like mm -hmm. not an option. And what I what I love about this movie, aside from, you know, everything, it's a masterfully told story. It's a story that's told in one day, but two years. Right. Like yesterday, mm -hmm. Joel went to sleep and today uh, Tom Wilkinson's character's business and marriage is over. <laughs> um, you know, everything changed and. And so I, it didn't, yeah, the idea of them, of them erasing each other over and over again, like, I, I just, I always just kind of went, huh, about that, like, maybe, but it just, it didn't, it just didn't blow my mind the way that it did for other people. Mm -hmm. So um, I also, in, in getting back to the context of this era, this was a really interesting time for indie movies and indie dramas, because like, um, kind of one of the biggest ones around this era was Fox Searchlight. This is not a Fox Searchlight film, by the way, but Fox Searchlight was on fire in the early 2000s. You had One Hour Photo, uh, 13, Napoleon Dynamite. Um, these really, like, these were movies that really break barriers. I mean, One Hour Photo, you get Robin Williams, of course. 13, you get Holly Hunter. Napoleon Dynamite is a movie that I want to do someday because I actually, am, I'm a rare Napoleon Dynamite defender, especially when you consider that that movie has no star power in it none at all um you know you you get uh max mom from sunny in it i guess um but yeah like this was this was only the second movie of indie prod co uh this is that 21 grams being their first which was pretty successful um other notable ones they've done uh thumbsucker which i like um martha marcy may marlene was one of their last ones love that one uh then of course one of my favorite movies that i sadly will not get to make a podcast about because i saw it for the first time after pirating it but adventureland um 
so this company, this is that, they went defunct in 2012. And if, if anyone has any info as to why, please let me know, because I really couldn't find anything on it. Um, but either way, what I'm getting at is there were a lot of indie prodcos that were either getting acquired by or partnering with partnering with larger studios and larger distributors. They'd cracked this great formula where if they got the right stars and just enough budget, they could make an indie movie really break into the mainstream without doing pandering things. Like, I mean, I guess you could say casting Jim Carrey would be a quote unquote pandering thing, but like, and, and, Actually, th- this movie got a pretty great cast. It, like, pretty much everyone in this is an established star. Um, it's it's a pretty small cast, but the small cast packs a big punch. Oh yeah, I was thinking about uh, after watching it, this cast and and how small it is, and someone could adapt this into a play. The visual effects would be complicated, but there'd be mm-hmm. such a great opportunity for it too. Oh, absolutely! With such a small cast, you could you could totally uh, and and such a simple simple but complicated but simple story in a lot of ways, complicated to tell. Um, there's th- there's a play in this, which would be very cool. I will go and watch that if somebody wants to turn Eternal Sunshine mm-hmm. of the Spotless Mind into a play. I bet that would do very well. I think it would. Um, Talking about adaptations, I found myself thinking today, if this were made in 2023, I feel like it would be a miniseries because I feel like the reaction, like, and this is where I get on a soapbox and talk about audiences these days, but audiences these days, like, can't leave well enough alone. And so there's, like, I think there would be a lot of, like, I want to see the patient of the week stuff at Lacuna. Um, It could be something that people, like, wanted more of because this movie is good at planting those seeds and creating those things that make us curious. Like, there's a little line from from Dunst um, she has on the phone while Joel is waiting. She's saying, I'm sorry we can't do the procedure more than three times in one year. Because it makes you think, like, who's getting the procedure done three times? It almost makes you think of, like, um, show that I hope actually comes back, but um, uh, severed. Uh, or Severance, uh, which I know Mike is a big fan of. Um, like it, I feel like it would have a similar vibe to that. Um, but it, like, when I think about that, when I really sat to think, like, okay, who's getting this procedure done three times a year? And I think that's a person who is unable to deal with heartbreak, and Lacuna is making that worse because, again, like, so, I, I again, I feel like the thesis of this movie is heartbreak is good, actually. Yeah, one hundred percent. When I when I was watching it again, I was like, and and I even I saw this when I watched it a, a decade or more ago as well. It's the point of life is to go through the ups and downs of it, including the painful downs. And I don't want this to sound like some sort of bypassing of like, if something horrible and atrocious has happened to someone, well, at least they learned from it. Like, we're not, we're not going to Sansa Stark mm-hmm. this. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> um, but what I'm mm-hmm. saying is, is yeah, you like in moments of pain and grief, that is when you can feel your humanity at its rawest. And that is, that's a, that's a sign of a beating heart, you know, um, is, is a heart that's hurting. And yeah, you can feel your humanity in other ways of joy and, and elation and, and everything like that. But you, you don't get the ups without the downs. And that's definitely mm-hmm. a cliche, but the movie does not present it in a cliched way at all or in a preachy way at all. It's, it's actually so subtle that a lot of p- people, I th- think when this came out, like misinterpreted this movie as like, it's saying that love is pointless or it's saying that they were meant to be together all along or whatever. And it's like, it's actually not about whether or not Joel and Clem make it. It's about, you know, we, we see that with Mary still being attracted to Tom Wilkinson after he's been erased. And we see Mm -hmm. that with Joel and Clem finding each other again. Like that's, that's the thesis of the movie is that it's like, 
you're gonna you're gonna go for who you go for and you might hurt them and they might hurt you and you might have to go through that and maybe you work through that and the relationship continues and maybe you work through that or maybe you don't and the relationship ends and that's that's the risk we all take when we open our hearts to someone right Mm-hmm. And and also it's important to note that uh, some of the people at Lacuna are not um, necessarily erasing relationships. Like you saw a woman who, and this, oh, this made me so sad because having lost a pet this year, yeah. um, but she's erasing memories of her dog that died. And, um, you know, it's, it's weird because <laughs> if anything, the more controversial thesis of this uh, movie seems to be like, it is good to feel pain um, because like, yeah, like you don't want to necessarily just be like suffering builds character. We should all suffer exactly. more. Um but it does seem to be like this idea that like if you do everything you can to get rid of this suffering now, like the suffering will find you. Um so there's a bit of determinism in it, I find which I I rather like. Um something about it also feels terribly Catholic, but I can't quite articulate why. Huh. <laughs> um, I'm going to have to get Mike to speak yeah. to that one. I'm I'm not the Catholic in the family. I mean, neither See, is I he, am being honest, but you know, he was confirmed. You're never, yeah, like I, as a confirmed Catholic, I will say like, you're, you never really stop being Catholic in the sense that like, there's that cultural attachment to you, like a fucking, like, it's just hanging off me like a goddamn colostomy bag. 100%. That is, that is the nature yeah. of culture. So I will say, uh, in terms of the art direction, I think it's a really smart choice in terms of the art direction to like make Lacuna as an office, this like dated carpet stained office with like wood paneling and stuff, because like, there's a particular genre of like movies um, that like, I like to call this is the future bitch, um, in which like everything is very clean and crisp and cool. Um, And it's not to imply that Lacuna is sketchy, but it does kind of make you think like, oh, like if Lacuna really did um, have the staying power and like what what it did was as effective as they say, there would be so many clinics to choose from. Lacuna would not be the only one, although maybe it's the discount one because like as a Joel and Clementine are pretty working class, but like. Lakuna's office aesthetic is something that I would call Brantford core. Uh, it looks like something you would you would go to in Brantford. Um, and yeah, like it's not that that should kind of tip you off that it's not this miracle. This is a relatively experimental procedure still that doesn't seem to have a lot of funding. You just have Tom Wilkinson, the real true believer in it. Exactly. Or the pioneer of it, but he couldn't get any funding for it or for some reason isn't charging that much because in order to actually get clients, uh, there's definitely something here of like Clementine works in a books in a, works in a bookstore, but spent money on this procedure. Mm-hmm. Like how much, you know, Joel is, we again, we don't know his job. We know he has a job, but he's an artist and stuff. And Elijah Wood comments on how like much of a quote unquote dump his apartment is, which I've never really understood. I'm like, it looks mm-hmm. like a perfectly fine apartment. Oh, Patrick, asshole. Yeah. Speaking of Patrick being an asshole, I have to talk about the, uh, the not trope, because it's not a trope. It's a real thing. The very real thing. It's something people do. It's something people do. The very real thing that happens of men showing up in women's workplaces to harass them. Um, so, which it just knocked me over the head at this most recent rewatch. Um, Joel meets Clementine at a barbecue thing with friends at the seaside or whatever on the on the beach and then goes to her workplace to ask her out which he's it's done quite innocently it's quite cute um you know it's when she has that firecracker line of like I'm not a concept you know etc etc 
Um, it's a very nice scene. But we know that Patrick also asked her out at work. And we also know, this is the grossest part, Joel mm. went to her work after their fight, you know, before he knew that she had erased him. Mm-hmm. And it just brought me back to, again, five years working at Starbucks with a lot of young women. More times than I can count on my fingers and toes, a guy would show up and just be like, why aren't you returning my calls? You know, um, it, it happened to mm-hmm. me with a guy I dumped. And we had no, like, support, of course. Who, how, since when do Starbucks mm-hmm. employees have any support? Um, but we we would just, you know, it's it's such a heinous way to corner someone because you have to be nice. You have to have customer service. A lot of women are very, very trained to be very nice and polite all the time, no matter what. And I saw I saw men weaponize that at Starbucks almost every day that I worked there against women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'd kind of just have to rally around the person that this was happening to and just put them in the back and say, like, she's not here or she's not talking to you or whatever else. I was very lucky that the Starbucks that I spent the most time working with had a hotel uh, security guard because it was attached to a hotel still is um there was a security guard right there so you know if if things got really scary we could always call security um but this is this is something that happens and i've i've i'm sure it happens to men who work as well if there's a man listening to this who's been harassed in his workplace by somebody who knows or was romantically involved with i believe you but i saw this only happen to women for five years at least Mm. once a month if not more frequently with like a guy they'd gone on a date with and then dumped or a guy that they, you know, hooked up with once and it didn't work out. And then they were, you know, he wasn't taking no for an answer over text or phone. And then he would just show up, <laughs> just show up. And it's mm-hmm. su- it's such a jarring experience. It's such a disarming experience. Um, so I And I the really... movie presents it as a pretty like neutral thing. The movie yes, doesn't yes. like... For the most part, like, I think this movie is fine in terms of its stance on morality, but it it's more like, I think what, you, what, I, what you're getting at is that, like, we just thought this was so fucking normal yep. in, in yep. 2004. Like, I don't think, I don't think the show, I don't think the Joel and Patrick showing up at work made my skin crawl until watching it two nights ago. Like, I think even watching this mm-hmm. while I was working at Starbucks, I was like, yeah, it's cute. <laughs> you know, I hadn't quite made the connection. Yeah of, you know, what we were seeing all the time at Starbucks with, because, because of course, like it, it, it can be cute to show up at someone's work and ask them out. It totally can be. I'm not saying like never do that, but it's just, it's a very weird, real experience of like, obviously women being harassed. It's imposing. Work, but yeah, exactly. It's imposing. It's mm-hmm. disarming. Um, and it was really fascinating to see it in, in the film. So a few more notes from me. Um, some of my favorite little character touches, um, Jim Carrey, um, when at the very beginning, when he goes uh, to Clementine's place and she's fixing a drink in the kitchen, the way he is messing up his hair so that he looks cooler, like it's really subtle. I love it. And then um, how much Kate Winslet um, hand talks as Clementine to the point where it almost feels like um, like stimming. Um, like she, it almost, because she is a person who we see get dysregulated quite a bit, it almost feels like she talks with her hands a lot and moves her hands a lot to regulate herself. She paces a lot. Um, God, I love her body language in this movie it's so incredible. much. Just the way that she, when they meet on the train to Montauk, the way that she just climbs onto the seat, you know, when they meet for real for the first time at the house and she takes his, his chicken leg and it was so intimate, you know, the way he remembers it. Um, mm-hmm. it it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a magnificent performance. 
Mm-hmm. One small, like, take that, because I kind of forgot when we did Small Soldiers that David Cross was also in this, but I really do need to reiterate my point from episode one of Home for the Holodunce, which is, unless it's Tobias Funke, David Cross can't act. He's a great stand-up comedian. He can't act. He's one of the worst parts I of this movie. I laughed so hard seeing him in this, because I'd completely forgotten. It's David Cross and Mel from Frasier, mm. who are just this, cup, this couple, <laughs> and you're like, huh? And David... I do love that they are just fighting all the time. I kind of love that. And David Cross is just being David Cross. And I swear I have seen him do this character a thousand times. Like, I'm just trying to build a fucking birdhouse. Like, Like, he's just, and and he's like, yeah, he's okay in it. He's to your point about him not being able to act. He's playing David Cross. Like, he's not doing anything else other than trying to build a birdhouse. Yeah. But then I also want to talk about one of my favorite sequences. Uh, actually, it's two different scenes, but the scenes of Little Joel. And it reminds me of um, this belief that Freud had, because Freud didn't believe in original sin, but he did believe in what he called original helplessness. And he described, um, quote, the terrifying impression of helplessness in childhood. And Coffin and Gondry are able to, through direction and writing, channel this very the very real terrors of a child, whether it's like the trauma of killing a bird, which I will say that scene is literally the only scene with a person of color in it. Um, there's a black child in that scene and that's it. Just saying. Um, or like being upset as a toddler because no one is looking at him. Like she's not looking at me. No one ever looks at me and like the desperation in his voice. I feel like that's something you can very much relate to, um, especially as someone with two kids under five. Because it's like when a kid is doing something that seems petulant and then you realize it's because everything is scary as a child. Yeah. yeah. I When he says, I wanted to pick me up, crazy how strong that desire is or whoever that line is. I love these whiplash moments with... Mm-hmm with Jim, uh, with, with Joel's character, the writing, the performance and everything where he's in the moment that he's living and then he's reflecting on it immediately when he's, when he's in the memory. Um, it's just, it's just a magnificent moment. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you feel that as, as a parent or as someone who's caring for children in any way, their, their desires are all consuming, whatever they are, whether it's affection or hunger or exhaustion, whatever they need, it is, it is completely all consuming. Um, the, the bird killing scene is just, I'd totally forgotten about it. And then watching it again, I was like, oh God, I don't like any moment of this at all. Um, and it's mm-hmm. as someone who's raising, you know, a assigned male at birth, we we're raising them as boys for now. If they tell us otherwise, we will believe them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as someone who's raising boys, um, with that asterisk that I just, uh, declared, <laughs> um, I, I worry mm-hmm. about these moments because I want my kids to keep their humanity as for, for their entire lives. Right. I want them to keep the parts of themselves that have compassion, that don't want to hurt a living thing. Um, And the way that little Joel is getting bullied into doing it. And it makes me think about how boy on boy bullying is like the the beginning of toxic masculinity, right? Like it doesn't come from nowhere. Mm -hmm. Um, It comes from probably dad telling son to, to be a certain way. And then, that son goes off to school and tells all boys to be that way and, and manipulates them to get there. Um, and I just, you know, it, you just have such a strong desire to like protect your children from ever being in those scenarios. Or if they are in those scenarios to know that they can, they don't have to consent to something that they don't want to do. And they, they can come get help. They can come get a parent or a caregiver um, to come get help. The, the, the amount of times we see to, we say to Gabe, like, 
ask a teacher, go to a teacher if something like that is happening to you. Um, and, you know, we hope we just set him to school and hope that he does, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so now both of us have notes about the effects. Um, I particularly like, there were things that even I noticed in my viewing today that I hadn't noticed before, um, like, which is in one of the first memories that is erased when he goes to Lacuna, you see just a chair blurring behind him. It's not something they make a big deal of. It's not something they really center on. I love that shit. It's magnificent. And you put one you you put one that I I also count as one of my favorites, which is Patrick and his head. Yeah. Because there's no memory of of Patrick's face. So you can go back to your memory mm-hmm. and you can try and I, I was excited watching this on Friday night. I was like, yes, this is the moment where we can't see Patrick's face. I'm so pumped because I, I remember that that was coming because um, it's so memorable and it's so horror. It's so creepy, um, even creepier than Patrick when he does have a face, which is hard to do because Patrick is a very creepy guy. Um, <laughs> He's a weird little weird guy. Little guy. Um, yeah. And just, you know, the, the mm-hmm. trying to turn him around and it's just not happening because there's just there's no memory there. And that actually sets us up brilliantly for when Clem is saying to Joel, so stay. And he's like, I, I can't, I left, I left the house. There's no memory there. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't, if you regret doing something, you can go over in your mind over and over and over again, what might've happened if you had done the thing that you wish you had done. But when it comes to reliving what actually happened, uh, there's no memory there. And that's that's just a fascinating way to to tell a story. Mm-hmm. Um, now let's talk about uh, well, a little guy who is not weird, uh, a conventional dorky little guy that that we both just love. Mark Ruffalo. Um, this was not my introduction to Mark Ruffalo. Mine was thirteen going on thirty. Oh no, wait. Oh, this is actually a bad introduction to Mark Ruffalo. My introduction to Mark Ruffalo was collateral, but my introduction to charming Mark Ruffalo was thirteen going on thirty. Um, but yeah, he, I love his character. I love Stan. Like he's kind of a dork. He's in this movie about as much as he needs to be. And that's it. He gets in his tidy whities so I can't complain. He is falling over like 20 to 25% of the time. Like he is just so clumsy. He's just falling (laughs) over. He's dropping things. He's (laughs) dropping his glasses. He's, he's clinking bottles while trying to clean up. Like he's just spastic, but yeah, I am I am so glad that Mark Ruffalo is still phenomenal. I love him as the Hulk. He is my favorite part of uh oh my god, I'm blank Spotlight. <laughs> I was like the Boston Globe movie, Spotlight. Um he's my favorite part of Spotlight. He's he's a phenomenal actor. He's so good looking. He's aged brilliantly. And uh yeah, I just I became immediately he obsessed really with has. him. Yeah, you know, the clumsiness of Stan, both his physical clumsiness and just also his like kind of emotional clumsiness um, really drives home this like Lacuna is a fucking Mickey Mouse operation. It is Um, a shit show. He's one of our brilliant young technicians and he's just this guy who is getting stoned at people's apartments. He's just a guy with a job. I like Stan a lot. He's a guy with a job and a girlfriend and that's all he is. And there is just catastrophic collateral damage around him. Well, he collateral damage, I guess. Catastrophic damage around him. Like, in one night, he loses his girlfriend and his job, probably, you know, when we talk about Mary. Um, yeah. And he really, you can tell, he's just a guy who wants to get stoned and play video games and whatever job he works, he wants to be able to afford and have time to do that. And, like, he'd like a girlfriend to do that with, too. Like, he's, Stan is fine. Stan, I, I, I hope Stan was okay. I hope he, I don't think he and Mary are going to work out. I hope he found someone else. 
mm-hmm. and another job. No. Yes. Uh, now I want to zero in because normally I'm the one who asks the questions, but you asked the question, you know, it's, and I am so down for this question. Does this movie need more sex, Brie? Absolutely. It, it needs does, more right? sex. Okay. Although, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I'm also thinking about um, another Kaufman movie that I love, which uh, uh, I'm thinking of ending things, uh, star- starring Mr. Mister Dunst himself, um, which I sometimes think like, okay, that is a movie that adding sex to it would have made it feel incredibly like, uncomfortable. Yeah. But I do think that like, to an extent, like, um, and I mean, I do like that what they put in like uh, her her underwear and the baby gel just like yuck. Um, it's, that that is Jim Carrey at his most Jim yeah. Carrey in the delivery. But I do kind of think like they have a relationship that it like we don't see any sex, and yet there there seems to be nothing at all chaste about their relationship. I do I do think I would like to see a little bit of sex, even if it's not the most sexy sex, um, because Joel like kind of slut shames Clementine a lot and like, oh, you have sex with pe- guys, so they'll, you have sex with people, so they'll like you. We have no evidence no. of that. So I would like, to, I would have liked to see a bit more physical, or even just like them waking up naked next to each yeah. other. You yeah, know? we have a lot of scenes in bed. And so I think I thought we had a lot of sex scenes going into this. And I watched it on Friday and I was like, I'm missing a sex scene. Probably just one. Because mm-hmm. they have great chemistry. They, they, they're in bed mm-hmm. all the time, which is a really cool choice because, um, you know, a lot of relationship happens in bed, whether it's sex or otherwise. And we don't, th- that goes unseen, right? So it's very intimate for an audience mm-hmm. to see a couple in bed. But, uh, but yeah, I, I finished watching it and I was like, that that could have used a sex scene like we could have sex sex. yeah (laughs) um but yeah i too like you um was a little bit um looking back because i i do remember this movie being nominated in comedy at golden globe and every time i watch this movie i get increasingly like why Like, I understand that for TV, the justification used to be, I think they've changed this, but they only consider half hour long things as comedy, which is why Orange is the New Black gets used to get nominated as drama. I, th- that role's gone now. But I don't know, like, it's kind of like, I mean, I got really pissed off a few years later when Walk the Line was nominated in musical or comedy, because to me, Walk the Line is not a musical. It's a music biopic, but it's not yes, a musical. Same. It literally exact um, same, Brie. I was like, why yeah. the fuck is this a musical or comedy? Yeah, thank you. Because when I when I saw this nominated, and I think it won Best Musical or... No, 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 it was only nominated. I don't think they won anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was nominated for Best Musical or Comedy at the Golden Globes. And I, I, I would have been 16 or 17 at the time, probably 16. And I remember thinking like, oh, I'm probably just like too dumb to get why this is a com- like why why people think this mm-hmm. is a comedy, like maybe comedy. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm just like a dumb teenage kid. Like maybe there's something I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, now I'm 35. I'm almost 20 years older and I feel the exact same way. And I, I have to think like, was the uh, who is it? The um, the foreign press, uh, whoever the Golden Globe people are. Yeah. Hollywood, Hollywood foreign, foreign Press Association. Um, were they like well it's jim carrey so it's a comedy mm-hmm. and you got to wonder cuz now now that i know that movies do for your consideration packages um you've got to wonder what was in that because the trailer is so shockingly tonally distinct from the movie rightfully so a trailer's mm-hmm. job is to get you to see the movie and it worked 
uh, certainly got me to see the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and trailers do not have to totally follow the movie because they, they, they're two different things. Um, but you've got to mm-hmm. wonder what was in that for your consideration package and if it was totally similar to the trailer and if that had anything to do with it. And people saw this kind of zany uh, package um, with Jim Carrey in the cast and just slotted it into comedy because I'm like, is this even a dark comedy like this? I would say that this is a romance. I don't think it's it is. Not. No. I would say it's a romance or a drama and there's totally thriller elements in it and horror elements in it. I wouldn't mm-hmm. call it a thriller or a horror. I'd probably call it a romance or a drama. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, it just, I, I'm, I feel very vindicated for 16 year old me for being annoyed with that. And I feel vindicated <laughs> about walk the line because I thought the exact same fucking thing. And I'm glad that you agree. I have a feeling it was so that they could get Joaquin Phoenix the win because of who he might've been up against that year. Although I can't remember who it was. You're um, probably right. But yeah, I think I want to say that was the Brokeback Mountain year. I want to say it was Brokeback Mountain. Um, so you know he had his work cut out for him. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think, and and maybe that's it too. Maybe it was that they didn't want to compete against certain things. But like, not all comedies have to be pleasant. I forget which episode, but Death Smoochie came up on a recent uh, on a on a recent episode, and that's I think an example of a comedy that is very unpleasant because this movie is a deeply unpleasant movie. Um, but it's that there's not even laughs in this. I would say the, the most laughs I get are the baby Joel stuff. Like, yuck. Like, exactly. And co- yeah. and comedy, even dark comedy is supposed to be subversive, right? It's supposed to be like, I don't know, like critiquing norms in some way, which this movie doesn't quite do. It's not that this movie doesn't have a point of view. It's just, it's not, it doesn't have the elements of comedy of like taking a situation and turning it on his head for laughs, um, or for or for the purpose of discomfort, right? Like it's it's not like trying to make no, because it's cool. a highly it's a highly disruptive movie. It doesn't play with structure. It kind of it, it blows up the structure totally. Um, so now we're at the Dunst Factor, and it, like I said, this is the only movie we're doing at home from the Hall of Dunst where Kristen Dunst is not the star. But she's a very important part of this movie. Um, I would argue that she's possibly the most tragic character. I actually think her character is far more than Joel and Clementine, especially when you know the deleted or extended scene that deepens her subplot, which for those of you who don't know, um, in addition to Mary and Marzuyak having had the affair, uh, they throw in that, oh, she she aborted his child and he made her get an abortion. But even without it, Mary, to me, is the most tragic character. The scene of her, or the shot of her holding her box of things, about to finish loading mm-hmm. up her car, and the look on her face, and her, I love, I love that her hair is scraggly, like, I'm so glad that they weren't, like, gotta make sure her hair has, like, you know, flat iron curls, like, every single woman in every scene mm-hmm. now, even if she's had a shitty time. It's like, no, she looks like she's had a fucking horrible night. She looks like she's been up all night. She kind of looks like shit. And... Uh, Stan, bless his soul, is like, I really like you. And she just says nothing to him. She says she's out of words. She's so wrung out. She's so, and it's it's incredible. That performance is just breathtaking because she's playing someone who is going through something and has been through something and whose world is crashing down around her and whose world has crashed down around her. And God, it is so satisfying to see just a, a woman's rage a woman's rage and vengeance in this way. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. Mary, the administrator man, it also, they, they, they set up the plot <laughs> so well that an administrator would know how to do this in an, in an hour or however long it took her overnight. And we know that there are 
thousands or tens of thousands of Mary administrators around the world who could turn companies upside down in a heartbeat if they, if they, <laughs> if they got angry enough. So uh, I just, I love everything about her performance in this. And I, that what sticks with me is really that, that scene at the end when she's standing in front of her car. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I will say also, she and Ruffalo, but she gets a bit more uh, to do with this. She plays stoned really yes, well. Um, the way, like, she kind of alternates between, like, nervousness and, like, chatterboxiness. Like, it's one of the better depictions, especially from this era, because I found people still didn't know how to write stoners. Um, I, I think it's a really good depiction of being stoned and trying to convince someone that you're not stoned. Um, but does this this thing we've talked about in pretty much all of her movies, uh, this week, where the look she gives, the thoughts behind her eyes, she's really good at creating a character who has obviously lived a life that we as the audience are only seeing a small glimpse of, you know, and that's why I think she brought Mary Jane to life better than anyone else could have. Um, that's what I think, um, you know, I would say this is fairly similar to who she is in Drop Dead Gorgeous, but I like to think of Mary as this girl who's like kind of like Maybe she went to like community college and has like her associate arts degree. She's kind of making her own way in the world, you know, her first grown up job. And she's still enamored with the world. Like um, she's this is probably Dunst at her most naive in like in terms of how she plays a character. She hasn't been beaten down by the world yet, but the grasp she has on it is so tenuous, like how quickly the illusion of everything is destroyed for her and that she still continues to blame herself and kind of throw herself at the mercy of Howard's wife. Like, oh God, I it's it's a painful, painful scene. Oh yeah, her running after the car. I'm just a stupid girl. Like, I'm just a stupid girl with a stupid crush. I think that's the line. It's so memorable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she, she does a magnificent job in this role. And, and I really, I think she carries every scene that she's in just kind of, quietly um she just she she just has this presence about her that she does in all of her movies um that's just so it's so pleasing she carries the scene without overshadowing anyone either i think she's a very generous actor mm -hmm. all right so we're on to our holodance lightning round um so rachel what is your favorite song from this movie soundtrack it's everybody's gotta learn sometime by beck uh i if i had ever been good enough at lyrical for a solo I probably would have chosen this song. I never did a lyrical solo. I did ballet and tap solos, but uh, everybody's got to learn is the li the lyrical solo that that wasn't. Though I'm sure there are a thousand of them. Uh, for me, I, I got to say "Light and Day" by the Polyphonic Spree, which um, is on the soundtrack. I think you actually do hear it diegetically. Um, it's playing in Joel's car, um, but oh, that song is so lush and wonderful. Does not fit with this movie whatsoever. It works, it works in that scene. Um, yeah, yeah. So, who is the stronger performer in this, Carrie or Winslet? The most cruel question you have ever asked. Yeah. <laughs> cruel. Okay. I agree. I need to heavily caveat this. Kate Winslet is truly like maybe my favorite actress one of them for sure like love her obsessed with her she's magnificent in mm -hmm. this it, if I have to give it to one or the other which I do it's Carrie um especially just watching it again recently the versatility and depth he has in this role the subtlety he has while like I mentioned bringing slapstick to it um mm -hmm. the change you can see in his eyes when he realized that Clem is packing up her things and storming out. Um, there are so many moments. The way, like I mentioned, he 
whiplashes between experiencing his memories and commenting on them. This is a very, very difficult role and he performs it effortlessly. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, I have to give it to Carrie with a mm-hmm. lot of uh, sadness. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And it's, it's, it is a tough competition. I think this is Jim Carrey's role. Like, I think this is the role that, you know, someday when he leaves this earth, that he should be remembered for. Um, I think one of the things like, I, I think I mentioned before, I consider Joel incredibly self-loathing. Um, and I'll say this, when Jim Carrey plays Joel, I believe that he hates himself. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, you're playing this self-loathing incredibly well. Jim Carrey's probably a little bit self-loathing too. Um, so favorite line or piece of dialogue from someone who isn't Carrie or Winslet? It's, uh, Tom Wilkinson's wife when she's driving away from catching Kirsten Dunst and Tom Wilkinson kissing and Mm -hmm. Kirsten Dunst has just said, I'm a stupid girl with a stupid crush. And she stops the car and she says, you can have him. You did. Mm -hmm. And what is magnificent about that line is it's written and delivered in such a way that the truth comes crashing down for the audience at the same time as it comes crashing down for Mary, the character, which is mm-hmm. incredibly difficult to do, especially with just a handful of words and two sentences. Um, mm-hmm. And I, re- I remember being a teenager and hearing you can have him, you did. And then going, Oh my God. <laughs> right. Just realizing <laughs> along with Mary, what just, what, what just happened. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. So I, um, I, I realize now that I think the one I picked is one of the few like comedic beats of this movie, which is when Elijah Wood and Mark Ruffalo are working on, uh, on Jim Carrey and he's talking about Kate Winslet and he's like, I think I fell in love with her that night. Patrick, she was unconscious. Like it's, it's a funny joke <laughs> for the situation, but then I think like, that's really gross. It's really gross. So gross. Um, I I love that Stan just points out endlessly how gross Patrick is. You stole her panties. That's that's gross. Like it's just Mm -hmm. it's always satisfying when when a guy points out that another guy is being gross. Absolutely. Um, So then your favorite line or piece of dialogue from Carrie or Winslet. I have to give it to Sand is overrated because that was definitely my either MSN Messenger or ICQ status, depending upon what was on Vogue at the time, um, for at least a year, if not longer. Mm. Uh, There's one that for some reason, this line always makes me emotional. And it's him saying after the bird incident, I wish I knew you when I was a kid. Um, and I have said that so many times to my husband, which, uh, because those of you who actually know me know that there's like a pretty significant age gap between my husband and I We're seven or 16 years apart. So we wouldn't have known each other as children. That's, that's the weird thing. And it's gross to think about, but, um, like that. My, one of the things I love about my husband, he's he always talks about how he had a really good childhood and he thinks that like his childhood being the way it was is responsible for him being the very, very stable person he was. He's really appreciative of his childhood. Um, I'm not overly appreciative of my childhood, but I just think like there's something so pure about children that I'm just like, yeah, I wish I knew child you because like, and it's, I am sad that there are parts of you that I don't know. I love you so much. Mm-hmm. But I wish I knew that side of you because I just want to know more of you. Um, so uh, if you had to add in one extra plot element, either finding out that Joel and Clementine continue to erase each other over and over or finding out that Mary had an abortion, what would you keep? I think I've made my views on the erasing each other mm-hmm. over and over each other pretty clear earlier on. So I have mm-hmm. to choose 
Mary had an abortion. I think it's really interesting that that was a plot element that they removed. I think that's a really respectful way to treat a script in an edit that's like, we realized this movie didn't need this. We realized the story didn't need any more. So we removed some. Um, it means they're not precious about the story. But there's a version of this movie that, that totally could have worked in and uh, and still been very devastating. Yeah, I, I think I will go with Mary Had an Abortion as well. Um, but that is also because, like we've said, I think um, finding out that Joel and Clementine erase each other over and over gives makes this message's stance on love and relationships and stuff a lot more... Um, a lot more finite, a lot more solid. And um, whereas it ending the way it does gives us a chance, gives us the audience a chance to kind of make up our own minds about it. That said, like my one caveat is as someone who I am a huge proponent of talking about abortion more in movies, um, you know, depicting, not depict, not literally depicting it. I don't want to see it on screen. That's a little graphic for me, but like, you know, characters getting abortions and I would like abortion to not always be this tragedy. Um, in a lot of cases, it's a pragmatic thing to do. And also, um, even without it, Mary really gets punched in the guts uh, emotionally. Yeah, and true. so even without it, so it's like, okay, I'm kind of glad we don't have it because I don't have to see Mary go through that again. But yeah. it, if you had to put one in, I'll, I'll put the abortion in. Um, I'll take one abortion. Um, so do, do you think this movie has a cynical view of love or an optimistic one? I think it's optimistic. I think it's mm-hmm. realistic because I think what this movie shows us that almost no media certainly showed us at the time uh, is how imperfect love is um, mm-hmm. and how complicated it can be and how it's a cliche now, but it does take work. You have to keep choosing each other and the relationship over and over and over again, even as life uh, has its twists and turns. So As I said earlier, if Joel is going to find things about Clementine that he doesn't like and vice versa, and she's going to feel trapped, well, if they want to be together, what can they, especially with her feeling trapped, like there's something there that's like, what can they agree to as a couple to make sure she doesn't feel that way? If, if they want to be together and if it's not the relationship she's feeling trapped in, right? Like there's so much to explore there and it's just about meeting the person's needs. It's about asking them what mm-hmm. they need. Clem, what do you need? Do you need a solo trip every year? Like, is that, if, you know, obviously if you can afford it, et cetera. But like, do you need like a camping mm-hmm. weekend by yourself or with your friends every year? Um, it, there, there are logistical things that can be worked through here, I think, for that relationship to work. Um, so I think because it's kind of refreshingly realistic, um, I think I think I choose optimistic over cynical. Yeah. Yeah. I choose optimistic, but not optimistic necessarily in the way like, you know, in the movie might have the stance of like, you know what, these two are absolutely not meant to be together. Like maybe if I sat down with Charlie Kaufman and he's like, no, you shouldn't want them to stay together. I would believe him. Um, I think, yeah, I think where this movie is optimistic about love is that they're like, it's still so important for them to go through this relationship and understand more about themselves and understand more about other people. You know, the advantage they have is they have now learned why they drove someone else away. And they have now seen themselves through someone else's eyes. 
But I think this movie has a weirdly optimistic view about heartbreak, um, that, that heartbreak is so necessary and that even your bad loves are incredibly important. Like I've often thought like, okay, I've had some shitty relationships. Would I erase any of them? No. And it's not even like, oh, I, I learned through my heartbreak, but it's like, I think of the person I dated right before Jared, who was like, you know, capital B bad news. It was a terrible relationship, but that was also the relationship that I found myself in because I had to learn to advocate for myself and stuff. So I think it is a really um, optimistic view of love and proves that you don't have to be like, they're going to stay together forever. That's not what I mean by optimistic. It's, it's that this relationship was really important and they are fools to want to forget it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think it also shows that mm -hmm. heartbreak and mourning is a part of the relationship cycle too. So even if, even if Clem and Joel aren't going to work out with, you know, when, when they shrug and say, okay, let's do this. Um, maybe what they're going to do this time and hopefully what they're going to do this time, if it doesn't work out, is they're going to mourn this separately and together. It makes me think of the scene where Joel is crying in his car when I first watched that when I was a teenager, I thought he was crying because he and Clem had just broken up. No, he's crying because he just found mm -hmm. out that she erased him. And he found out that she's erased, you know, everything. He's, he's carrying these memories alone. He's carrying this pain alone. And that is even harder than carrying it alone, but knowing that she might be hurting too. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so in this movie, uh, Dunst is a better actor than who and a worse actor than who? She's better than Elijah Wood. That was an easy one. He's fine in this, but she's better than him. She's a little worse than Winslet, but only slightly. Yeah. Yeah, Winslet and and Carrie are just a duo tour de force. I will actually say that I think uh, Kirsten Dunst ranks just above Tom Wilkinson. I think Tom Wilkinson could have done more in his performances. And I think, yeah, of all the supporting cast, she's absolutely the MVP. Um, so now this movie is a better Dunst performance than what? And a worse Dunst performance than what? This is hard. I love her in everything. <laughs> I do too. Yeah. It's better than Spider-Man. Um, mm. There's some moments in Spider-Man. I find her a little forced. That was probably more of a director's choice than a her choice. And it's worse mm. than Marie Antoinette because she is flawless in Marie Antoinette. Mm -hmm. I will say if I'm looking at what it's just better than, and I can't even remember what I said Bring It On was better than, but I think it's just because I, I maintain that Bring It On is one of her best roles, uh, Bring It On and Drop Dead Gorgeous. It's just above Bring It On and Drop Dead Gorgeous and just worse than Power of the Dog, which I really loved. Um, so if you had to eliminate one scene, character, or plot from this movie to make room for Naomi, what would it be? Naomi, by the way, listeners, is the character. That we, we haven't talked about the fact that Joel basically cheated on his his partner to be with Clementine. Yeah. She was supposed to be in the movie and then her scenes were deleted. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Joel is living with Naomi and goes to a friend thing solo mm -hmm. and meets Clementine and then asks out Clementine and it is asks out Clementine later when he shows up at her at her workplace. And it is never clear mm -hmm. how broken up he and Naomi are when he asks out Clementine. Um, so there's there's something interesting going on there. And it says a lot about Joel as well, going from relationship to relationship. Um, I mm -hmm. it, It's hard. This is a hard movie to edit because it's a very tight edit. Uh, I think what we could do less with is it's David Cross. David Cross and Mel from Frasier. Um, to your yeah. point, it's, it's pretty funny that they're fighting constantly. I don't really know how much it adds. Um, other than showing us, maybe, maybe there was, they were trying to show us like what 
Clem and Joel would have been if they had stayed together. They would have been toxic all the time. Um, though I think toxicity is a choice, so <laughs> hard to say. Um, but yeah, I think we could have done less than that and and made uh and made some room for a Naomi. Though we still would have needed Joel to find out that Clem deleted him somehow. Yeah, I I think. When I look at it, Cross and his girlfriend are not in it actually that much. By the way, uh, Naomi actually did have scenes shot. Ellen Pompeo is Naomi. Wow. Poor um, Ellen Pompeo. I want to find those scenes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would actually say as much as I like him a lot and I like his weird little guyness, I think you could actually do without Patrick. Um and even the plot of him kind of seducing Clem, because I feel like it just adds like fake stakes. And he's so creepy that like, and you don't see him get his comeuppance at all. He doesn't, he doesn't really have a conclusion. Like, I don't need him to be outright punished because I'm not into moralizing movies, but he doesn't have a conclusion uh, at all. And I just think when you add in You've got, you know, the the Joel and Clementine stuff. You've got the um, the Mary and uh, Dr. Merzriak stuff. Um, I think that I'm like, oh, maybe maybe Patrick is adding a he's just half a cook too many in the kitchen, you know, Um but yeah, I, I think it's fine. I'm ultimately fine with the balance of this, but I do kind of feel like Naomi like is a bit of a ghost in this because she's only mentioned and never seen. And it would have been nice to find a, to find a way to work her in. Uh, lastly, on a completely unimportant question, what's Clementine's best hair color? Blue. I hate the blue. What's your favorite? I hate blue. I hate blue and green tones in hair on uh, white girls, especially people with um, finer hair textures, which um, she, which Kate Winslet appears to have, um, because I find it looks dirty. It looks like it's been through a pool, and it shows your oil a lot more. I love her in the orange. Oh yeah, you like the tangerine. Orange is eh? fucking gorgeous. I love tangerine. Love tangerine. So. To, to conclude our thoughts on Eternal Sunshine, we must ask the ultimate question. You're watching this for the first time in 2023. What aspects of this do you think have and haven't aged well in terms of its social commentary, in terms of its style? You mentioned this already and you're absolutely right. It is blindingly white. Blindingly. Oh my God. <laughs> Just <Yeah>. what? <laughs> Whoa. And and they're supposed to live on Long Island. Like, yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. So, um, and and related to that, it's sort of void of uh, what anyone's kind of culture is because it it's it, it mm. the story is like it's so focused on telling the story that we we only learn about characters when we absolutely have to. Um, it's not interested in any extra character development unless it's helping with the plot. And so what that means mm. is everyone's just this blank slate, which means like you don't know really anyone's like values or you know, whether they were raised Catholic and are now non-religious, for example. Um, whereas if you... We do have... We can assume that Clementine is like vaguely Polish and that's about right. it. Right. Yes, we can assume that from her last yeah. name. Yeah. Um, so it's... Yeah, it, it's it's really, it's really, really white, um, which fortunately is alarming to see in the year 2023 uh, because most mm. casts are more diverse than this now, thankfully. Um, it's very cishet, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's very, very man-woman, man-woman relationships. There aren't a ton of relationships in this, but they're all cishet. It would be 
you know, really nice to see a, a queer reading on this. And we obviously need more stories of queer love that doesn't work, that isn't necessarily aspirational, but is just love the way that this movie is just love. Um, also, Clem mm. calls him the F-slur. She calls Joel the F-slur. I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. And she, it just... It's kind of like when we were talking about Bring It On yesterday. I'm just like, I forgot about all the R-slurs in this yeah, movie. Yeah. Like, man, it was just slur city until like 2010. Yeah, it I feel was. Like. And then we got Twitter and yeah. we were like, this isn't okay. Yeah. No. and But now Twitter is where you can go to be called slurs yeah, again. Yeah. Uh, thank you, yeah, Elon. Full circle. Um, yeah. I, I think one of the things that I would say hasn't aged well, and this is less a social commentary, but like, Joel is presented to be almost this like deep thinker uh, and let's just like Valentine's Day was invented by greeting card companies and I'm just like oh shut the fuck oh, yeah. up there's a lot like, of shut the fuck up Joel I would have yeah so like um, and maybe it's good like maybe Joel is I mean we do get the idea that Joel is supposed to be a loser so maybe I'm reading too much into it but I would say like yeah you're right we do not know who these characters really are um and I would like to just know a little bit more about them. I think that's kind of what I would demand in 2023. That said, in terms of things that have aged well, I think this movie actually has an incredibly timeless uh, kind of feel to it. It reminds me of like, I, I mean, like I said, it's clearly set like Long Island somewhere, like maybe like working class neighborhoods, even like the Lacuna office. It's kind of like Toronto the second you leave the core. Yeah. Like, um, if, if you're hanging out in East York, where I used to live, baby, we're, we're both East Yorker or former East Yorkers. Yeah. Um, like it, it feels extremely East York, which also has this weird like time capsule timelessness to it. Of like, this could be 2004, but it could be 1996, or it could be 2015. You know? Yep. Yeah, they are walking through a city, and you see convenience stores and small restaurants and businesses whose names you don't recognize the way you do when you walk along, you know, almost any major street outside of the downtown core in Toronto, or even right downtown on Young Street, you'll experience some of that too. Oh, absolutely. Uh, someday off air, I will tell you about the door-to-door water heater scammer job I once got. And the quote-unquote office was um, on the top floor of like the Young and College, like where that Starbucks is and stuff. And I'm just like, oh, this is where Young Street gets shitty. Like, um... <laughs> Yeah. All right, Rachel, thank you for being with us here today on this special final holiday episode of Tales from the Rec Room. If you want to once again plug where we can stalk and agree with you online, do it now. Rachel GBK on social media, and you can subscribe to my newsletter at rachelgbk.substack.com. And as for me, I've been your host, Brie Rohde. You can find me on Blue Sky at Prune Tracy or follow this podcast at Rec Room Tales on Twitter and Blue Sky. That concludes Home for the Holidays, and I am about to get back to my life as a dance teacher for the coming months. So no new episodes for me. You can expect perhaps a bonus episode or two in March, maybe. No promises there. And we will back be back with full programming in June. If you have any topic suggestions for what you'd like to see in the new season, drop me a message on one of my social platforms. We'll do anything that the host saw, played, or listened to via traditional or physical media. Happy holidays. Don't be like Clementine and drink and drive. Take it easy.